0: Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption, the redemption, and transfer a property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalising transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Keelon, and Mahlon." May you have standing in Ephrathath and be, mem- be famous in Bethlehem. Through you, the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Baalus took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezra the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Imimedad, Imimedad, the father of Nashon, Nehoon, the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David.
1: I have a photo of a picture that I read on the internet just last Monday. I'm quite a golfing fan, so today this chap is the enemy. This is the remarkable Tiger Woods. He's a man that polarizes opinion. But he's had a tough time of it of late. Just in case you are not used to golfing stories or uh, are immune or don't like the uh, the wonderful game that is golf. I'm not uh, biased in any way. Tiger Woods is a remarkable character. He dominated the world, having uh, won 14 majors over a period of about 10 years. He's got all the records, he's got all the money as well. But the last six years or so have been traumatic in his life. His private life, really, pun intended, is a car crash, or rather it was. It's a very, very sad and sordid tale that will make your heart break were you to Google it this afternoon. Not just personally, but there's been tales of a drug addiction or addiction to pain-killing medication. Physically, he's a wreck as well. His back has now been fused, whatever that means, a bit of aldite or superglue in the back, something like that with the odd pin from a screw fix, something like that in medical hands means you can fuse your back so that now he's kind of a bionic man who's retained all his skill and guile on the golf course. And last Sunday, Last Sunday, was brought a remarkable comeback to an end. He won his first golf tournament for a period of about five and a half years. It's about 80 tournaments he's won now globally, and he remains an icon, an icon for the world of golf. But this title caught my eye. I don't know if you can see it very clearly. Tiger Woods' Comeback, a tale of implausible redemption. It's hard to resist. That title's hard to resist for someone looking at the book of Ruth because that's what the book of Ruth is about. It's about redemption. Chuck Colson, who also has a very colorful life, helped me to understand redemption once again this week. He says, nowadays, nowadays in the modern world in the 21st century, we think redemption is something we can do for ourselves. That's very interesting. So we love the comeback story of Mr. Woods. It's brilliant that a man who was at the peak, who fell so far, has now returned to something even higher. He's Tiger 2.0. He's a greater man. He's more humble. He's still got the skill. What a great ambassador for the sport, some people say. It's redemption, a story by himself. He's back to the heights. All he needs now is to win a major, and he's got the shortest odds for the Masters, the first major of next year, apparently, uh, just in case you think I'm a gambling person. But it's a wonderful story of redemption, of a man going back from the lows to the highs of sport, and we love a story like that, whether it's sport, literature, Jean Valjean, whether it be kids, Nemo, that kind of J-shaped curve of joy, sadness, resurrection, it's what makes stories superb. But then there's a problem with that thinking. If we think that redemption is something we can do by ourselves, the Bible gives us a reality check as we look into its pages. The Bible says the very opposite. You cannot redeem yourself. You need redemption. But actually, more biblically, you need a redeemer. You need someone to save yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't get back on the horse. You can't get back on the first tee and remember how to play You need not redemption, you need a redeemer. You need someone who has the power, the authority, the resolve, the resources to rescue you. And that's what Ruth is about. And just in case you've missed previously in the book of Ruth, here are some pictures. We could do with losing a light or perhaps a curtain would be helpful. Chapter 1 of Ruth, there is a journey, the first five or six verses, we've said this before, they describe a ten-year period of heartbreak and of tears and of bitterness and of sorrow, of a decision that Elimelech makes to lead his family from the house of bread, that's Bethlehem, that's what it means, to Moab, because there's a famine in the land, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. By the time we get to the end of verse 6 of chapter 1, there is sadness and tears cleaning Naomi's Dusty face. There's just uh, pictures on the wall of her past life where she had her hands full. Now they're empty. There's three funerals. And there's no joy. A very sad way to start the story. And then by the time we get to chapter 2, there is hope. In desperation, they've returned now to Bethlehem because they hear on Radio Israel that the famine has come to an end and there is now food that God has provided in a miraculous way. And there's food. And from empty hands, it's now full of grain, is a picture we use. By the time we get to chapter 3, that's a wonderful piece of art that you cannot see. There's a, these two women scheming in the most godly way possible of Naomi using all her guile and experience and faithful initiative to go forth and bag her man for Ruth. Ruth needs to do some daring, vulnerably saturated moves because she has a heart for safety and she throws herself on the kindness of a man called Boaz. And Boaz responds. He says, I will redeem you. You can't do it yourself. I will redeem you. I am your kinsman redeemer. But There's a spanner in the work like there isn't any good story or film because the problem is at the end of chapter 3, there is one who is closer than I. There's someone closer than I who should have the first say on your hand and your heart and your property. What's going to happen? Is it going to be a happy ending? We're all there kind of biting our fingernails because it's about Luke Or rather, Leviticus chapter 25, a kinsman redeemer, kids, on your sheet. A kinsman redeemer is someone, or a guardian redeemer, is someone in God's law who has the authority and resources and wants to take the risk to care for someone in their family who needs care. It's someone who has the resources to Reach out and show kindness to someone that can't help themselves. And this passage tells us, chapter 4, about three redeemers. And here's the first one. A redeemer, verse 1 to 10, for Ruth. A redeemer for Ruth. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there when the kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Now you remember from the end of chapter one, the town gate of any ancient city was the center of commerce It was where there wasn't newspapers, so it's where you'd go for news. It's where you'd go to buy and sell. It's where you'd go if you were that way inclined for gossip. Everything happened at the town gate. And so that's where Boaz goes. And once again, you see, like chapter 2 and in chapter 3, Boaz is a worthy man. He's a man of standing. He's a man of influence. Well, how do we get that? because he's there in the place of business, and he's there, verses 2 and 3, he has the authority to say to ten elders, come and witness what I hope will be a good piece of business for me. But notice, in a time when names are so important, remember, Elimelech, my God is king, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, sadness rather than sweetness. We don't know what this man is called. We've been waiting for this man, Mr. So-and-so, to appear. And it just so happens, as we saw in chapter 2, that at the very time that Boaz was at the town gate, who were to come along but Mr. So-and-so? It's a Hebrew way of saying this is an insignificant man. This is an unworthy man. And I will tell you that by not mentioning his name. We get that from verses 2 and 3. But Boaz has a plan. Look at what he says. He went over and he sat down, and 10 of the elders are there, verse 2. And notice verse 3. He said to the kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, we don't know his name, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in the queue, next in the line. Here's an offer, a one-time offer, Mr. So-and-so, that's too good to refuse. It's your chance to increase your property portfolio. It's your chance to get some of the prime fertile land that exists around Bethlehem. All you need to do... Let's take Naomi under your wing. She's a lady who's past childbearing age. She's getting on a little bit in her life. She's not a risk to your social standing, but she will take a little bit of drain on your resources. But if you take the punt, if you take the risk, this has great reward for you, Mr. So-and-so. And so so he says, verse 4, I will redeem it. And you kind of think, what is Boaz playing at? Here is this wonderful picture of romantic initiative in chapter 3, and now Boaz is going to lose it all. What's he doing? I mean, just imagine. Imagine if Ruth and Naomi, who have a very large vested interest in this discussion, in this transaction, imagine if they tiptoed just behind Boaz to the town gate And they're listening in to what is happening. You can just imagine their jaws dropping. What is he playing at? You mean I've got to marry the other guy? My heart's for you. I want to marry you. I've been overwhelmed by your kindness. What is he thinking? Verse 5, Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz is as shrewd as he is worthy. He is as godly as he is careful. And notice how the Mr. So-and-so responds. Boaz, who's seen it all as an older gentleman, is if to say, oh, by the way, um, you know you said you were going to buy it just before you seal the deal. I forgot to mention one little detail, and her name is Ruth. and She's far younger than her mother-in-law, and she's a Moabitess. Remember, he puts that in again. It's very significant. She's a lot younger. She needs a lot more care. You'll have to provide with her an heir, and that heir will inherit all your land. Oh, 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 no, sorry, deals are off. There's no way I'd want to do that because I have a family, Mr. So-and-so may have said, because Boaz is as shrewd as he is worthy. Verse 6, there's no way I can do it. I might endanger my own estate. Verse 7 and 8, you can buy it yourself. Not interested. And at this moment, the director of this film turns up the orchestra to the max. You've got some some whoop-whooping in the background. You've got kind of two people running towards each other. Mr. Darcy, Poldark, they're all coming together. This is where they get the inspiration from. And how is that romantic deal sealed with one of the most strangest sentences in the Bible, verse 9. So he took off his sandal. And then you can imagine the elders running for the hills because he's not had a wash for a while. Here he comes. He takes off his sandal because they didn't have a quill or a pen or red ink in which to press a seal. This is how the people of the ancient Near East would seal a deal. I'm not sure what's going on here. I think it's a symbol to say, wherever my feet would have trod, that now is yours. Something like that, but I'm not sure. But he's got all the property. And verse 10, what has happened to Ruth? Ruth has been described in these ways. Ruth the Moabite,s She is a foreigner. She is a slave. She is a servant. But listen now for the new description, verse 10. Boaz says, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite,s I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife a wonderful, subtle inclusion of a sign that Ruth and Naomi, these outsiders, these outcasts, by the kindness, the hesed, the promise-keeping, never-stopping, always-and-forever love that Boaz is a wonderful picture of, is going to mean that Ruth now has a home. She has a kind provider, a benefactor, and more than that, she has a husband. These three R's, if you're on the sheets or if you're on the screen, are so important because a redeemer, a redeemer must have a right. They must have a right to redeem. You've got to be part of the family line and Boaz and Mr. So-and-so were but they've also got to have the resources to redeem. You've got to have the price. You've got to have deep pockets to redeem someone. It's costly. It's costly in terms of time and energy and resources. Financially, you'll be caring for someone else. Less for you as you care for others, but also, thirdly, you must have resolve, and that's where Mr. So-and-so fell short. If you take someone on, young or old, it will be hard for you. But everything Boaz does is a picture of loving-kindness, other-centeredness. He's showing us a love that takes risks, a love that sacrifices, A love, a love that looks beyond oneself to another. And in Boaz, as we've seen throughout Ruth, is a wonderful story and a wonderful picture of someone else who has the rights, who has the resources, and has the resolve. Here's Boaz. He's looking at Ruth. He knows it's going to be costly. She's an outsider. It could be social disgrace. But now, because of his loving initiative... He's going to redeem her and she'll be welcomed in and have all the benefits that are his. And he's a wonderful picture, is he not, of the ultimate Redeemer, Jesus, the greater Boaz, the glorious Boaz, as Spurgeon said. This is not just a love story, this is the hinge which the whole of human history turns. And it tells us of another Redeemer. And the question of Jesus is does he have the rights? Does he have the resources? Does he have the resolve to redeem not just one person, not just two people, but a whole people for himself? And the answer is yes. Of course Jesus does. Who is he? Well, Jesus has the rights because he became one of our kin, one of our kinsmen. He took on human clothes. He came from heaven to earth. He's not God who stands far away. I don't care, shrugging his shoulders. He's a God, the only God of human history who got his hands dirty, who walked the streets of the world, which he spoke into being, and he took on human flesh, and he came close, born like us, like us in every way except one. He didn't sin. He has all the rights, but he also has all the resources. How so? Does Jesus have big pockets? He has the biggest pockets ever made. What do I mean? Who is he? This baby who was born to Mary in the same city, Bethlehem, He has all the authority of heaven and of earth. And he came to the world. He has the authority over sin and death, suffering and the grave. He could say to evil spirits, depart. He could say to the wind and the waves, stop, be still. He could speak as one who had authority. He said blind people to see, lame to walk. Does he have the authority? Oh, yes, he does. Does he have the resources? Oh, yes, he does. But does he have the resolve? Is he a quitter? No, he's not. There's Boaz. Boaz is going to take on the risk, or will he? Boaz does. Mr. so-and-so did not. One had the resolve, one did not. Jesus had the resolve. What do I mean? Jesus, who made this journey from heaven to earth with all the resources and authority, with these huge, deep pockets of all the wealth of heaven, he had the resolve to go from heaven to earth and from earth to the cross, carrying not just a piece of wood that he spoke into being, but carrying my sin and your sin upon his shoulders. Is he a quitter? No. On the night before Jesus took to the cross, he wrestled, sweating blood drops for you and for me. Does he have the resolve? Yes, he does. Because what did he say? Not my will, but yours. He's the redeemer we long for and need. Not just carrying a piece of wood, carrying our sin upon his shoulders, bearing the wrath of God that our sins deserve, And just as Boaz redeemed Ruth, Jesus is the only redeemer, the only rescuer who has the authority, the resources and the resolve to redeem a people for himself, you and me. We don't just need redemption, we need a redeemer. And his name isn't Boaz, his name is Jesus. It's a redeemer for Ruth. All that was ours became his, Ruth says to Boaz, and all that is his become ours. we can say the same of Jesus. It's the remarkable nature of the gospel. But let's move on. Redeemer for Ruth. What about a redeemer for Naomi? We've said a few times, I'm tempted, hear me correctly, to deface my Bible. To cross out the word Ruth and write Naomi. Because I'm not sure if this book should be called Ruth, or whether it's more accurate to call it Naomi. Look at this passage again, verse 11. Naomi takes centre stage. Verse 11, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. This is the uh, the blessing prayed over Naomi. Verse 14, after the baby's been born, what do the women of the town say to Naomi? May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons. Verse 17. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And whenever there's a genealogy, get someone else to read it. Now look, you might be thinking, whose son is this? You know, we've, we've stayed off the mother-in-law jokes, but we could bring them out here because Ruth has just given birth to the baby. And now the mother-in-law grabs the baby and gets all the attention. Whose son is this? Verse 14, praise the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. Verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Verse 17, a son has been born to Ruth. No, a son has been born to Naomi. So you kind of think, what is going on? Chapter 1, empty hands, dusty feet, face being cleaned by tears, bitterness is my name. And now here at the end of this story of redemption, you've got Naomi, whose heart is full, whose face can't stop smiling, whose hands are no longer empty, not even with a grain to eat. They're full with a baby. It's beyond her wildest dreams. Ten years of sadness, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1. Now you've got ten generations that come from her loins, so to speak. And this reminds us that whatever our circumstances, from famine to feasting, from poverty to plenty, God is always in control. God has the whole world in his hands. It's a wonderful story of redemption from sorrow to joy. And one of the big headline lessons from the book of Ruth is God is in the business of transformation but it takes years, it takes decades. And in a culture that likes to tweet, we're so impatient and we need to get our timeline in line with God's timeline. And we need to grow in patience, don't we? He holds the whole world in his hands and he doesn't paste answers uh, in the sky, but he weaves our story into his story of redemption. Because remember this story of sadness to joy, of poverty to plenty. When is it happening? Chapter 1, verse 1. When is God most profoundly at work? In the days of the judges. This is a time when the church was an absolute mess, if it existed at all. We didn't know what was right from wrong or wrong from right. And yet God is most profoundly at work. He's not forgotten his covenant promises. He hardly appears on the pages of the book of Ruth. He appears twice. And even that is by inference. But God is at work in large measures and in small details. In the life of Ruth and Naomi, who think God has deserted them, pain and joy has been replaced with, or rather pain and sadness has been replaced with joy and satisfaction in God's purposes. Cowper was right, wasn't he, that we mentioned a few weeks back. Very often, God's purposes will perplex us. Very often, his hands will be, and his ways will be hard to trace. They will be hidden from our eyes, but God's goodness and his kindness just pervade our lives in so many ways. And the provision and the hope for Naomi with this baby with full arms at the end of the story is a sign and a symbol of hope that every Christian has in the gospel. Whose baby is it? Well, it's Ruth's. But by being in Naomi's arms, it's a wonderful picture of redemption, from sadness to joy, from heartbroken reality to hope-filled future. Ten years of sadness, ten generations of promise. It's a redeemer for Ruth. There's a redeemer for Naomi and then there's a redeemer for the world, a redeemer for the world. One of the things that struck me about this wonderful story is uh, just the amount of space certain events get given. You've got a whole chapter on one day in a sweaty field, chapter two. You've got a whole chapter, chapter three, that describes the event from darkness of dusk until the shade of the, the morning hours. And then just like that, in one sentence, you've got a wedding and a baby. As if that's not the most important thing. It was so clear that that was going to happen. I'll just give you a line on it. Verse 13 can be paraphrased. Oh, yeah, they got married and they had a baby. Oh, if weddings were so quick. But then notice what happens next as the story comes to an end. This then is the family line, verse 18, of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nahshon. Narshon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Ruth four eighteen to 22. But then Matthew keeps going in this wonderful family tree like BBC who do you think you are there's nothing on this Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 says and David was the father of Salmon just continuing the genealogy and if you skip to Matthew chapter 1 verse 16 it says this many generations later and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ When you get to the end, it's very tempting just to skip over those names. I mean, who wants to read that anyway? But that's the whole point of the story. When you realize that this is not just a love story, Poldark, Jane Austen, whoever she is, these guys have got nothing on this story. The details of this one family are part of a huge story of redemption. Their important details with hairs on their heads, named and numbered and heartbreak known. It's nothing in comparison with a story that God's at work doing. This 10 years of heartbreak, this journey from the place of bread to Moab and from Moab back to the place of God's covenant protection and blessing, this provision of a redeemer, this is the whole of human history. Important events of little people who are wired up to the greatest story ever told. This is not just a love story. This is the story of redemption. This is the hinge of history. The hinge of history that began with disobedience. As a man leads his family away from God. God's in control of that. He's sovereign over all. God's also in control of a a chance happening, of someone walking into a field, of a Mr. So-and-so appearing at a town gate. And who would have thought this would have happened? That regardless of her age regardless of her ethnicity, regardless of her gender, Ruth, the Moabitess, the slave, the outsider, who has this faith-filled initiative to lay hold of Naomi no matter what. I'm no longer going to worship my God. I'm going to worship your God. She is now part of the greatest story ever told. Friends, one of the signs that you grasp the gospel is that boundaries start to fall down. Were you to read the family line again, verses 18 to 22, it's full of people who don't deserve to be there. If you were to read the uh, the genealogy, the who do you think you are of Matthew and of Luke, there's lots of people in there whose lives are train wrecks, like mine, like yours. Like someone whose wife ran after them with a golf club, and there's an irony, and smashed it as he drove into a fire hydrant. Like somebody who drove his car in the most ridiculous way as he's under the influence of alcohol and drugs. His name was Tiger Woods. He rescued himself, so he thinks. But what he needs more than anything is the gospel. Friends, when you understand the gospel, boundaries start to fall down. Because God loves to stand the values of the world on their head. What do I mean? In traditional society at the time of... Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, interracial marriages, they were an absolute no-no. And yet what does God love to do? Turn traditional values right on their head. They're at the center of the story and they're brought into the family of God, the forever family of God. Traditional society says, men, men are better than women. And yet what's one of the most astounding sentences here? Verse 12, two and a half thousand years later, we still read this truth, Naomi, Ruth, is better to you than seven sons. Your daughter-in-law, Ruth, is better to you than having seven sons. Now, who would say that? Only God can say that. She is valuable. She is greater than seven, the perfect number. You can have all the sons you want, Naomi, but Ruth is more valuable to you than them. What's God doing? He's turning traditional values right on their head. You see, if you think you're saved by performance, if you think you're saved by your record, you think you're saved by your reputation, you can always look down on other people because you set the benchmark, you set the standards. But if you're saved by grace, if you have been redeemed, if you've been bought, not by your own efforts, not by working hard, but by the kindness of your maker, if you're saved and rescued by Jesus, boundaries start to fall. No snobbishness. But humility, no proud hearts, no prejudice, color of your skin, your bank account, your income, your class, where you study what you do, it doesn't matter because you're saved by grace. Because this story is about a redeemer for Ruth. It's certainly about a redeemer for Naomi. But Jesus Christ is bigger than that. He's the redeemer for the whole world.